Welcome to this week's ATP podcast. I'm Chris Bowers and I'm joined by the broadcaster and coach Candy Reid and a number of seagulls who can make their voices heard but hopefully not drop anything on us. That's because we're in a place where, well, the seagulls really are at home here. We're the guests because we're by the manicured lawns, not of Wimbledon, but the equally luscious courts of the English seaside city of Eastbourne. In fact, mentioning the seagulls, Candy... I've been struck by how low over the court they've been flying. I mean, I'm sure in a number of rallies we've seen this week, players must have had the seagulls in their peripheral vision while they've been trying to focus on the ball. I think it's uh, quite a danger, isn't it, when the seagulls get too close to the players and the fans really love it when they do those deep dives. And we saw uh, Jack Draper, didn't we, get pooed on during an interview after a good match that he'd played, but he took it all in jest and uh, it's meant to be a sign of luck, I believe. Well, uh, he, he certainly picked up a bit of luck. He was a semi-finalist here this week. We'll come back to him in a minute. In fact, you've been doing a lot of interviews this week. What's been the highlight for you of your week in Eastbourne? So many things. I think one of my first interviews was with Holger Uhn's coach and luckily I, I got him early because Holger lost in the first round to actually Ryan Penniston. And uh, my first question to him was how he got into coaching. And his first answer was that he used to be a circus performer. So that led to a whole lot of other questions and an interview that I quite clearly wasn't expecting. But what a revelation. Not many interviews start with that, do they? (laughs) And and I gather you were challenged to a table tennis match. But more of that as we go on in the podcast. It's it's interesting. We we always have this balance in the run-up to a, a Grand Slam tournament. We obviously need to focus on the lead up to a Grand Slam. But these tournaments are tournaments in their own right and Eastbourne is one of the oldest tournaments uh, on the global tennis circuit it goes back into the late 19th century and and I get the sense I mean I've only been half the week here but this is a a tournament which has its own buzz irrespective of the fact that people are thinking of Wimbledon well it's been quite laid back overall lots of people enjoying practices lots of people getting extra practices in and it hasn't had the perhaps tenseness of a Wimbledon championship or another major where you could feel a bit more adrenaline, a few more nerves. But certainly it's been a nice, relaxed lead-in and the players are taking this seriously because it is an indication of their grass court form heading into the third major of the year. One thing we haven't had too much as the wind gets up is a lot of wind. It can get very, very windy here. One thing we have had is Serena Williams, which is a tremendous boost both to the sport of tennis and Wimbledon. Well, what a surprise and what a boon it was for the whole Eastbourne International to have uh, the 23-time major champion here playing doubles, of course, with Ange Jabeur. They did, in fact, only play two matches and they won both of them. One of them was tricky, one of them was less so. And then, of course, uh, Ange Jabeur said she had a knee injury and uh, they didn't play their semi-final match. But it was good to see Serena back and it will be very interesting to see, won't it, when she plays her first singles match at the Wimbledon Championships. Well, a lot of this week has been about the build-up to Wimbledon. We'll be discussing the Wimbledon draws and matchups as we go along. But first, sticking with the Eastbourne tournament, and it's congratulations to Taylor Fritz, who beat his American compatriot Maxime Cressy to claim the Eastbourne title three years on from winning his first tour event here. I'm the type of person that once I do something once, it gets so much easier to be able to do it again. I just kind of have like a, a routine. I know the feeling, and I've just been back this week doing all the same things that I did last time I was here and as soon as I got here I just I just felt like I was playing really good tennis so definitely just a lot of confidence being being here where I won the tournament uh, two years ago or three years ago any specific things I mean same restaurants or yeah yeah, yeah same same restaurants uh I mean the course just feels really good to me uh always has and 
I don't know. I I I, I, cha- I changed up the hotel this year, but I'm just trying to you know I'm just trying to keep the same routines, I guess. Are you now a player for all surfaces? Because you clearly trust the grass courts here to, to be able to play like a hard court game and the game that you want to play. Yeah, I think grass has always uh, been a good surface for me. I felt like, um, I mean, obviously I won my first first title here, so I think that it, it suits my game well when I'm when I am uh, serving well, playing big points well. I think that's what what it really comes down to on grass. I've been doing that uh, really well this week and. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've always felt like uh, it's, it's a service that I can do well on. We spoke to Mike Russell this week, who was saying that you're very good at giving feedback. It, it seems almost counterintuitive, because most of the time it's the coach that gives the player feedback. How does it work that you give him feedback? Um, um, what kind of things do you say to him? Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really surprised when people are, are, are confused, and, and you know, some coaches think that I'm, I'm trying to to argue or I think I know better I just I want to tell the coach what I'm thinking in situations why I did this why I did that so they can better understand my thought process and what's going on in my head it should give them a better understanding of um, why I'm hitting this shot why I'm doing this in this moment instead of them just telling me what to do you know I want to also pick his brain and understand why he's saying what um he's saying what he is saying because you know I'm not gonna lie like sometimes maybe I think my my tennis IQ is very high maybe maybe sometimes I do feel that that I'm right and I just want to uh explain I just want him to really know where where I'm coming from and why I did what I did and and see if he that makes sense to him or if he has kind of like a a counter to why that's maybe not the best idea so it's it's really just a uh better understanding type of thing between us not me trying to be stubborn can you give an example of the kind of thing that you might give feedback on? Like maybe he asked me why I didn't go line here. I'd say, well, I felt more comfortable going cross. I know that I should have gone line, but I just felt like I might have missed it. So I felt more, more. it was more of a safer shot, like stuff like, you know, stuff like that. Is that something you did with your mum when you were a child? When you uh, talk about your te- tennis IQ, I mean, you obviously had a very good upbringing. Yeah, my dad, my dad was the one that was coaching me more, but... I mean, I think it kind of comes from my dad because he, he loved to talk tennis and he was also very uh, stubborn. So I think just being around it and playing a lot and just kind of understanding the understanding the game and analyzing the game a lot is kind of just how I've just learned, I guess, I don't know, learned a lot about just the, the, ten- the sport. And you seem to play through injuries very well. You <laughs> came here with an injury. You had this amazingly quick recovery a year ago for Wimbledon. What's... Um, do you have a higher pain threshold than many, or what? I just, I, I just feel like if I'm not injured to the point where I can't, can't walk on the court, that I feel like I can, I can play. I don't know. I, uh, it's probably one of my, my best assets and one of my biggest weaknesses is how, how stubborn I am and how much I hate to pull out of tournaments and and not play. And you know, to be honest, I, I came back, probably came back a little bit too early at French Open with with my foot. You know, it took me a bit to to find my game, and then I think maybe I shouldn't have played my Magic Queens. My my knee, uh, f- my knee kind of flared up a day or two before, and it was just very frustrating for me because I felt like I just started to kind of find my game, play good tennis again. So I didn't want to pull out there, and so I played. But I, I, the way I was moving was was really I probably shouldn't have played that match to be to be fair. But I just figured grass, I could serve big, you know, maybe, but. Um, we kind of finally got a hold on everything, and uh, 
I'd say after my first round match here, my body as a whole started to feel really good. My knee started to feel 100% again. So it's, it's, I guess it's a good time heading into Wimbledon and then heading back to the U.S. hardcore swing. Have you ever had any blazing rounds with a physiotherapist who says, no, you must not play? Oh, we didn't. Yeah, I mean, more with the coaches as well. It's like, it's... It's really tough. You know, the biggest thing was, I mean, Indi- the Indian Wells final was a big thing. I had lots of people telling me not to play before the match. And um, and then, you know, I almost went again. I really wanted to go against the doctors in Madrid telling me I had a, I had a pre, pre-stress fracture in my foot. And the pain wasn't too bad. I felt like I could play through the pain. I, I felt like that wasn't stopping me. Um, but they just said if I kind of kept playing on it, I could, I could really, I could, you know, uh, get a stress fracture and, and be out for months and so um, I still really 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 wanted to play even though they, they told me that but you know that time I I I listened and I I packed it up and I, and I took those weeks off and I tried to try to recover so and is there mental strength to gain from that as well as physical strength yeah of course it's, it's just it's really tough for me to to be at home when there's tournaments going on when I feel like I could be playing. Even if I am injured, I still feel like I could be pushing through it. You know, I almost feel like if I don't play when I'm injured, I'm like, I don't know, like, I don't know what the right word is, but kind of just being like, being weak or like, oh, like I, not tough enough to play through the injury. But, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to just take weeks off. And there must be a voice in your head that says, I'm not really weak. It's just me. It was like, oh, maybe I'm not as injured as, as, everyone's telling me or maybe it's not as bad as I'm letting myself believe and so I'll just I'll just see if I can play but yeah definitely having to take off Madrid and Rome and the week before French Open was was really tough for me because I did feel like the pain wasn't that bad to where I it would keep me from playing but I guess when you look big picture it it could have escalated to something that would have had me out for a long time so Taylor Fritz talking after a very successful week in Eastbourne. He has a tough first round at Wimbledon. He plays Lorenzo Mazzetti. I suspect in a couple of years' time, Mazzetti might be favourite for that one. At the moment, I suspect he's still sufficiently a work in progress that uh, Fritz would be favourite for that, but it doesn't get easier. Well, I would say, based on his performance here in Eastbourne, Chris, that Fritz is uh, one of the favourites for my liking at the Wimbledon Championship. He's got such a good game. He's got a huge serve. The forehand was particularly good against uh, the defending champion Alex Di Menor in the semi-finals, and it really came up trumps in the deciding third set. I think he's had such a great year. He got to the second week of a major for the very first time at the Australian Open, and then of course he won Indian Wells. I think belief amongst the Americans' camp is very high right now and he's got all the attributes to be a real danger on the grass courts and a word about Fritz's opponent in the final the serve volleying Maxime Cressy he told Candy that it's his mental strength as well as his game style that's helping him rediscover his early season form I definitely got so much more mature over the years before I actually did show a little too much emotion on the court uh, in, after, in college tennis so when I was 18, 19, 20 and and it really suited for college tennis to be like that. But uh, I've transferred that that uh, that mindset on the on the on the tour at the beginning, and I didn't really get many good feedbacks from players. <laughs> uh, so I, I got a little more calm over the over the last two three years, especially after COVID. And uh, now now it, it's about to it's about finding the right balance between uh, between being composed and 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 showing uh, and showing energy and. 
and I definitely I definitely know that both help, but some too much of one or too much of the other can be can, can be a detriment. Yeah. In college tennis, you've got to be up for it. You've got five other people playing singles. You've got two other teams playing doubles, and it's all about high energy. Is that mm-hmm. what you mean? Yes, high energy all the time, and uh, and if and if you don't show it, the coach yells at you. So, uh, especially if you're on the bench and not playing, and then the coach really puts a lot of pressure on your shoulders to 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 make as much noise as as possible. <laughs> And then so, when you come to the pros, you said you just kept going with that attitude and you got a few looks from other professionals? Yeah, I've, I've, had, some, uh, I've had a lot of players complain uh, about my attitude on the court. They, they, would, they would take it personally, but it was nothing against them. It was just my way of really being relaxed. And, and, uh, but the, over time, after playing on the tour for two, three years, it changed, definitely changed. <laughs> From one extreme to the other, actually. When that happened at the beginning and, and a few players took offence to perhaps being overly pumped, would they come up to you after the match? Or would it be something that maybe you could settle later and just say, you know, this is why? No, I, I, it's funny, actually. They came up to me after, uh, not after the matches, but one or two years after when my attitude actually improved. They, they, they told me then that uh, they were happy to see that I made the change. <laughs> so they didn't, go, they didn't really go up to me uh, in the moment. They, they, they came up to me after two years. Uh, you did a lo- lovely interview with uh, ATP's Jill Krabass about uh, your meditation and yoga. Are you still doing that actively every day? <laughs> I do a meditation every day. Yoga I tried to, but sometimes I don't, so I forget. But uh, no, definitely those are the two main practices I do every day. And uh, I, I do meditate regu- regularly, almost, I would say, three, four times a day. Uh, I do it really a lot because it always makes me feel good and and, uh, and uh, especially during during times where I'm not winning as much I think it's crucial to to use the meditation to to calm yourself down and, and find yourself again I think that that's helped me a lot and you do it several times a day so I presume when you wake up is that the first time you do it in the morning yeah, before for, anything else for, happens yes first time when I wake up I, I meditate and uh, I meditate before matches before practices or uh, at night, and especially when I have free time, I go to the beach and meditate on my own. Or No, I, 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 I do that a lot, yeah. And you just sit and just relax, and is there something that you think about that goes through your head that gets you very calm into mm-hmm. a space? Especially in the, in the, in the ATP tournaments, uh, lately I've, I've struggled a lot with the transition of, of being uh, in tournaments where there's that many people uh, around all the time, and... Uh, and I think meditation really helped me find the, the peace within, especially when I'm dealing with these, these new environments compared to the challenger level. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a quite a hefty rise, hasn't it? We spoke in at the Australian Open, and that was just the beginning when people were starting to know how good you were and you were starting <laughs> to really make, make an impact. Has life changed a lot for you? Uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot has changed and really dramatically very fast. And I think I've, I've had a hard time with the transition uh, and to, to suddenly be playing challengers and, and not, many, not having that much attention to suddenly playing ATP tournaments and being almost seated and, 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 and having a lot of people ask for autographs or ask for, uh, for pictures and, and, and asking for, and a lot of people are requesting interviews. I think it's been very difficult for me to 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 uh, experience that transition but I, I I'm starting to stabilize myself into that new uh, ATP uh, environment and and I'm happy that today I, I found my confidence yeah back yeah 
And you do sound like a very outgoing kind of guy. Have you always been like that? I'm uh, I'm outgoing when I want to. I I think I'm naturally more introverted, where I, I need to have a lot of time on my own, or to meditate, or to to find the the peace within. And uh, but I definitely can be outgoing uh, uh, on on the side if if I want to. Yes. <laughs> Did someone suggest you meditate? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, it, it was when I was I think 18 years old. It was a uh, a coach that really they introduced me to it, and uh, because. He obviously knew that I had some anger uh, or some some issues like with with emotions and uh, hard to control, and uh, that's when I got introduced to to the meditation uh, world, and uh, and it changed my life. Yeah. And yoga, you have a very explosive serve and volley game. Does yoga help you because you are very tall mm-hmm. with the explosiveness and the dynamic movements you have to make? Definitely, uh, I I I think the yoga really helps me be more in the present moment while doing the poses, and uh, and I think it also, it helped me a lot on the court to be able to stay in the present even though there's so much emotions going on. Uh, but uh, I mean, as for as much yoga as I've done, I haven't really gotten that much flexible. I mean, my body just just completely resisted. But uh, no, it. it, it it's an activity that I really enjoy. That's also enabling me to to feel the the, the peace and while while uh, flowing in different poses, and I really enjoy it. Yeah. So I presume you can do the basics, the downward dog, upward dog, but you're yes. not going to be balancing on one hand anytime soon. No, no, <laughs> no. I, I just do the basics. Yeah, sun salutations, uh, downward dog, upward dog, and uh, the chair pose. And no, there's definitely sometimes some poses I can't really do. And I feel a little embarrassed, but obviously the teacher says that it's it's that it's uh, you have to be comfortable in in the in the way you do the poses, even though it's not it doesn't look perfect. But uh, no, I, I I've nonetheless I always enjoy it, even though I'm not the most flexible person. But uh, it helps me with my mind. Maxime Cressy talking about yoga and meditation. Do you think, Candy, that players are getting more into mindfulness, meditation? Or do you think they've always been in it and now they're suddenly feeling safe about talking about it? No, I think it's actually become a, a much more of a thing just recently because they're trying to get that extra edge, aren't they? It's all about the little tiny margins. And with the way Max Impressi plays, and we spoke about it in the interview, how, how dynamic and how explosive he needs to be playing his game of serve and volley, which is very tough. He's also extremely tall. He's six foot six. And to get down for those low balls, to move both laterally and north and south when he's volleying, he needs that extra suppleness. And we saw him do so well at the Australian Open where he was credited uh, by, amongst others, Rafa Nadal and Pat Rafter, a famous servant volleyer. Um, and then he had a little bit of a slow edge on the clay courts, but now seems to be very comfortable on the grass. He's just looking for that extra edge, and I think the mindfulness and the yoga and all those things are helping to really become a very good player. I remember watching as a boy the Wimbledon final of 1975 where Arthur Ashe beat Jimmy Connors and at every change of ends he closed his eyes for about 30 seconds and everyone said wow the power of meditation it's taken 47 years (laughs) before this is really starting to become mainstream 
Well, when I was younger, we were taught to sort of play with our strings and to, to work on our breathing. So it has always been a thing. But now we're seeing more and more players, aren't we? Just like you mentioned, at the change of ends, they're closing their eyes. They're working with mental coaches and they're really paying extra attention to that. And it really has become a thing. And I, I just think it's the way of the future because tennis is such a mental game. It is. But is it incremental benefits or is it about just getting... The, the counterbalance they've got to be so uh, psyched up for tennis matches they've got to be absolutely competitive that actually it, the only way they can stay competitive in matches is if a good chunk of their private life is spent really low key and and really connecting with whatever grounds them well, I do think they need to be amped up, but I also think there's a balance because I think it's very easy to go on court and you're over-amped up and you can't control yourself. So you've got to have that serenity as well on court and just think about one point at a time, which is the old cliche, but it's so relevant. You've got to stay in the present. And of course, being happy off court is a, a major indication to being happy on court, but it still is very relevant and it just could give you that extra 1% to win the match. Well, as well as talking about meditation... Maxime Cressy also challenged Candy to a game of table tennis <laughs> and explained that he plays table tennis with his left hand, even though he plays tennis right-handed. So uh, I play left-handed because I don't want to disrupt my tennis game by playing with my actual <laughs> forehand on, on the table tennis. Uh, uh, no, it's always been like that. I've, I, I just feel like so uh, afraid and superstitious with the idea of, of changing... Uh, uh, a little stroke on the on the forehand, or or so I I just choose to play lefty. <laughs> if you played paddle or pickleball or squash, would you also go left-handed? No, I actually do play paddle a lot sometimes in 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 Paris, and I no I don't play left. <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you naturally ambidextrous? Uh, no, no, not naturally. No, not at all. It's just I, a mindset just, thing. Yeah, it's a mindset thing. I I just do not want. It, it's like I wouldn't do any activities that can risk uh, myself getting injured or. And any any activity that can risk getting me like getting my strokes uh, affected, I, I I don't do or I play left-handed. <laughs> it's awkward for your opponents because if they if you beat them left-handed, it's really embarrassing. Which I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do if my brothers. Uh, it drives them crazy. It drives them crazy. Yeah, I am not too bad at it. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to to play against you. We're gonna go head to head. We'll let uh, everybody listening how it goes. Maxime yes, Cressy, yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Candy and Maxine there. So, uh, who won? Well, the answer is no one won because we haven't actually played yet. Oh. But the reason it came up was because I was uh, playing a game of table tennis with Matway Middlecope, who reached the men's doubles final. He's just joined up with Luke Saville and the two together got all the way to the championship match where they lost to Nikola Metkic and Matej Pavic in a good final. And I have to say that uh, Matway beat me pretty handily. And so that's why it came up with uh, Mr. Cressy, who I, uh, well can try and take some revenge on when we do go head-to-head -head on the table tennis. So your confidence would have been low had you had to play Maxime? I think it was in the ground after uh, losing very badly to Matway. So I'm going to take out uh, yeah, some anger on uh, Maxime Cressy. But he's such an affable guy, such a likeable man. And Tracy Austin actually was listening to an interview, Chris. Her son played for USC, University of Southern California, against UCLA and Maxime Cressy. And at the time, Maxime Cressy was playing number five or number six in the singles lineup. And she mentioned how he hated to play from the baseline. He tried to net rush as much as he could. And now 
now he looks very good from the baseline he can handle it but it also he's explosive at the net and he's got a tremendous serve so now he's got the all-round package but it shows again that tennis is really a marathon not a sprint you don't have to be the best player in the world at 14 you don't even have to be that great at 20 in the men's game you can be better in your mid-20s and just keep going keep going keep plugging away and you could be a Maxime Cressy well, Maxim Cressy will come up against Felix Auger-Eliassime at Wimbledon. That's a tough first-round draw for both of them. That's incredibly tough. Felix has really had a very good year, hasn't he? It'd be interested to see how he plays on the grass courts against Maxime. But you've got to give the American, who is, of course, French-born, all the chances in that one. It's going to be a really tough first-round battle. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. While Taylor Fritz and Maxime Cressy were going head-to-head in Eastbourne, the world number six, Stefanos Tsitsipas, was reviving his grass court reputation by beating Spain's Roberto Bautista Agut in Mallorca in what was his first ever top-level grass court final. Since reaching the fourth round at Wimbledon in 2018, Tsitsipas has endured a barren spell on grass, which he talked about when he spoke with our reporter, Urson Kaderis. I was thinking about it recently. Like I haven't really played that much, not that I don't want to. It just shows probably how new I am to the tour. Um, I've only been here for a few years. Um, we all know that grass court season is not a very long season. Um, in my personal opinion, I think it should be longer. It's such a great surface to play tennis at, such an original, pure surface where you get to uh, really uh, bring your tennis to its, to its highest uh, level, I think, by coming to the net, playing aggressive tennis, being daring on the court. Um, but... Uh, Absolutely, I haven't played that much, but I'm looking forward on playing as much as I can. So what you just described, the game on grass, it's, it almost sounds like your game is designed for the grass court. I absolutely think so, yes. I, I'm so happy playing in this court. It's such a different feeling to any other surface. I feel so much connected with the history of tennis. I feel so much uh, connection with, with myself when I'm playing it. I get to experiment, I get to do some things that I don't, I'm not used to doing. Um, and it's not so much about, I guess, it's not so much about percentage tennis anymore. It's about finding that precision on the court, being consistent with it. Uh, coming, coming to the net is probably the most uh, flamboyant and beautiful thing, uh, especially when you do it on grass. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of touch involved. It's, it's a surface where you really need to unveil your talents. It's, it, obviously, hard work is important. But your talent is the one that counts the most, I think, uh, in this court. Oh, yeah. And, and you would like to see more tournaments? Absolutely. I think grass court deserves a lot more attention. Uh, it's uh, a surface with so much history. And the reason we play tennis today is because its origins you know, started from the grass courts um, in northern Europe. And uh, it's, um, it's reliving history in a way. Isn't it funny that, you know, the shoes that they used to play on grass with were now wearing as fashion shoes, like the Stan Smith? Yeah, tough to believe that. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what I would do playing with uh, shoes like that. Yeah. Uh, well, hats off to them. What can I say? And there's one shoe with your face on it, right, as well? There is, yes. Is that the Stan Smith as well, or is that a different... It's the Erlam Tsitsipas shoe. And um, I I'm, I'm personally absolutely love it. I think it's one of the most comfortable shoes I've worn. I didn't even really design the shoe myself. I, uh, when I saw the shoe, I was like, this is exactly how I would like the shoe to be. But the thing is that I never really put it 
single touch of anything. I wore it for the first time and uh, I was quite shocked to, uh, to see it uh, respond so well on my foot. Yeah, and your face is on it. My face is on it. That's pr that must be pretty cool. That too. must be very cool. <laughs> that is really cool. I mean, yeah, um, not a lot of people can say that. I used to wear Stan Smith shoes uh, as a young kid. Yeah. And uh, back in the day when I used to buy them, I would, I've never really thought in a thousand years that I would kind of be, let's say, competing with him now. Not in a way competing, but I guess trying to take over. <laughs> Did you ever think, I mean, obviously growing up, did you ever think you'd be competing with Roger Federer? Oh, what a question. Um, look, I have a lot of respect for him. I enjoyed just watching him on TV. Probably hitting with him on the tennis court would have been a never in a lifetime scenario. But sometimes, I guess with a little bit of determination, wanting to make it to the top professional level of tennis, your dreams kind of pay off and one thing led to another. Suddenly I'm faced against Roger Federer at the Hopman Cup for the very first time. And I'm about to serve and I'm thinking, Roger is on the other side of the net. He's my childhood hero. This is beyond unima unimaginable. Like, how did we get to this point? Um, this is how I feel about Roger Federer. Uh, he is... Um, Someone that is difficult to believe he's real, you know, it's, it's almost incredible what he has done with all these records and uh, the game style that he, that he plays is, uh, you cannot teach that, it's, no one can teach that, no one should be playing like him because it's quite impossible to replicate it in my opinion. Do you miss him on the tour? Yeah, I quite miss him. Um, he, he's a nice lad. <laughs> <laughs> um, he has a lot of... Um, He's a very charming person, you know, everyone loves him, even if we're competing against him, you know, we obviously uh, prioritize our own interests and we want to beat him, we want to do the best against him. But at the end of the day, he's just brought so much uh, joy to our sport, you know, wanting us to become better and, well, you know, obviously not trying to replicate his tennis, but um, he's really set the, the bar very high um, with the level of tennis that uh, has been played in recent years. Stefan Sitsipas talking with Ursin Kaderis and talking there about talent comes out most on grass, perhaps because you use more shots than you would use on maybe a hard court or a clay court. And, and, and he'd like to see a few more grass courts on the tour. I mean, I'm not sure how realistic that is, but I certainly find that you see different aspects of players on grass. Well, actually, that has been a talking point uh, when I've been doing the interviews, Chris, that the coaches primarily have been the ones to say we wish the grass court season was a little longer because it does take quite a lot of time to get used to the grass especially coming from the red clay of Roland Garros and I don't think it would be a bad idea to add a couple of more weeks of course uh, it's going to be tough to fit everything into the calendar but Stefanos Tsitsipas certainly has the game to be a great grass court player we know how good he is particularly on clay he's reached the final of Roland Garros last year there's a lot more to come I think from Tsitsipas I'd like to see him be a lot more aggressive he's got a very good net game he can use his slice just needs to work on his backhand return of serve that's probably his uh, big weakness on the grass courts with the ball coming a little bit faster and staying lower through the court 
Yeah, I was watching him in Mallorca, a couple of his matches there, and he was hitting his backhand return pretty aggressively. He wasn't just slicing it back. I thought he might adopt the Vavrinka approach and just chip the first serve return back, but no, he was really going for it. It was a little bit up and down from uh, Tsitsipas. I mean, he played very well in the second set of his first round match, but then he slightly laboured in his quarterfinal against Marcus Giron. So it, it's been a, a mixed bag from him, but... There's no reason why he shouldn't play well on grass. I do think, though, that he a better return on the backhand side on grass for him would be the chip return a la Vavrinka and Federer and just put that ball nice and deep into the corner, take all the pace, try and bite into the grass a little bit and then start the point. For me, he misses just a little bit too much on the backhand return because he's trying to hit over the ball and that's not easy when you've got a, a serve coming at 135 miles an hour which is staying relatively low in the court. So perhaps he could just get the ball back in play and then start the point that way just going back to the the length of the grass court season i mean there is an extra week after wimbledon there used to be a a, a massive grass court swing um mostly in great britain but after wimbledon a lot of the coastal resorts a bit like eastbourne would would play host to tournaments i was actually at a, a venue a couple of weeks ago a tournament called hoylake where they used to play wonderful events and i walked past the grass courts and they were playing football on them they put a couple of goals for kids to play soccer so all that work to cultivate nice grass court tournaments and perhaps that's just a sign of the fact that grass is not the surface it was and yet there's the tournament at newport rhode island the week after wimbledon I was trying to work out whether there'd be any way to incorporate that into the pre-Wimbledon swing. But, of course, it's linked with the International Tennis Hall of Fame enshrinement. So it's tough. You lived in America for 20 years. I mean, do you see any way of, of, of reintegrating an American grass court event, Newport or any other, into the pre-Wimbledon swing? I don't think it would work. I think the grass court has to be in Europe somewhere. And I would say if you could put a week or two, ideally, before, it, would have, it should be before Wimbledon, not after. The third major of the year should be the final big grass court event in my mind. And then the players are looking to get onto the hard courts and sometimes, of course, onto the clay. You're listening to the ATP podcast with me, Chris Bowers, alongside the broadcaster and coach Candy Reid. Let's look at one or two other uh, first round matches at Wimbledon. I don't think Novak Djokovic will be too worried about the prospect of playing Sunwoo Kwon, although Kwon has got some good results uh, to his name. And Rafael Nadal against Francisco Sarundolo. Now that is going to be a bit more challenging. Sarundolo did very well at the London Queens Club tournament and... Is, is a big serving Argentinian, the elder of the two Surundolo brothers. Yes, and he's uh, yeah had quite a lot of grass court experience in 2022, but he do, did lose to Tommy Paul, uh, the American, this week in Eastbourne, but then, however, Tommy Paul went on to beat Yannick Sinner before losing to Alex Demenor in the quarterfinals here in Eastbourne. But uh, I think Nadal will feel very comfortable with that. Of course, we're on foot watch, aren't we, with Nadal? As a foot doctor, a famous foot doctor in America said, what he's got going on in his foot is a ticking time bomb. So it's uh, very much foot watch with Rafa Nadal. Yes, he's uh, looking to try and warm up the nerve ends so that the blood flows a little better and he doesn't need to have the sort of the freezing of the foot that he said he played with uh, in Paris. I mean, it, it's... <laughs> I suppose this is what he lives for, these big tournaments, and therefore, if in doubt, he'll probably give it a try. But it must be worrying. You just can't bet against Rafa Nadal. I have to say that he's my favourite for the Wimbledon Championships. He's already won two majors this year on number 22. It's just remarkable. You cannot bet against him. I think we've all learnt that in the past. We sort of overlook Rafa on time to time, and 
Well, we've paid the price for that because he's just shown us time and time again that uh, he loves it when he's uh, not being talked about as the favourite. And he also loves it when he's being talked about as the favourite. It doesn't really matter to Rafa. He can overcome any obstacle, including a bad foot. We were talking a lot in the run-up to Roland Garros about Carlos Alcaraz. He's rather gone quiet since his uh, quarter-final defeat in Paris, but he starts off against Jan, uh, Jan Leonard Struff, which um, will be tough for him. Big server on grass. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Uh, first up, we haven't seen Alcaraz play any warm-up tournaments on the grass courts. Been keeping quite quiet and probably a good thing because there's been so much press attention around him. Everyone was speaking about him at uh, Roland Garros being a potential favourite. He didn't get perhaps as far as uh, he or we thought he would. But uh, he's just got a good all-round game. He loves to volley. We've seen him serve and volley quite a lot and add that aspect. And Juan Carlos Ferreira has really built a player with an all-court game. So it'll be very interesting to see how he does. But playing against Truth will be a really tricky first-round encounter. One person that I'm very interested in is last year's supposedly surprise finalist, Matteo Berrettini. Mm -hmm. I say supposedly because in many ways, Berrettini's game, the one weakness in it is the backhand. And yet on a grass court it's not a weakness because he has that lovely slice which stays so low on a grass court he's defended his title at London Queen's Club I mean he's got to be one of the frontline favourites if not maybe the second favourite he's probably top three for me along with Djokovic and Nadal you'd have to say and he's got a superb serve he's got one of the biggest forehands in the game and you're right that slice backhand stays very low he can also hit over it and I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier Chris about Stefanos Sitsipas just using the chip a little bit more than the drive backhand just to keep changing things up and get into the point on the return game that's the key we always talk about the serve being the most important shot in tennis and it is but so many people say actually on the grass courts it's the return which is more important than the serve because it gives you a chance of breaking assuming you can get the return back that's exactly right quick mention of a couple of other matches Hubert Hukac semi-finalist last year against Alejandro Davidovich Fakina and Yannick Sinner against the still reviving Stan Wawrinka well, Yannick Sinner, we know, has started a trial period with Darren Cahill. We tried to get an interview with Darren about it because, of course, he worked with Amanda Anissimova a little bit in Australia earlier this year and then before that, a former long-term coach of Simona Halep. But uh, he's with Sinner in Eastbourne and he will be with Sinner in Wimbledon. Uh, wasn't a great tournament in Eastbourne for Yannick Sinner. Lost to Tommy Paul in the second round, Sinner receiving a bye in round one. There's a lot more, I think, to come from the Italian on grass courts. Uh, but her catch definitely has to be considered a contender. I'd say he's definitely in the top 10. He moves beautifully. He's got a big power game, a very intelligent player and one to watch out for. Well, it'll be a slightly odd Wimbledon with no Russian or Belarusian players and no ranking points. But that might be a blessing for Denis Shapovalov. He's on a terrible run of form at the moment, but he won't have to defend the points he won by making it to the semi-finals of Wimbledon last year as everyone will be unable to defend their points. And as Shapovalov explained to Richard Connolly, he's got good memories of Wimbledon. Obviously, I had a lot of success in juniors, winning junior Wimbledon. Uh, heading into the pros, kind of took me a couple years to, to get adjusted to the grass, kind of really learn how to play against the pro players on it. And of course, with last year, you know, making semifinals of Wimbledon, uh, was really able to, to kind of peak and uh, play well on the surface. Those adjustments that you made over time, was that about movement? Was that about tactics? Give us a sense of that. A bit of both, getting comfortable with just uh, playing my game on the grass as well as moving. Uh, first couple of years, I felt a little bit off balance. I uh, didn't really know how to move on, on the surface. So it was kind of, you know, just getting, getting my feet wet and, and getting used to, used to moving on this. 
So last year, semi-finals at Wimbledon. Do you look back with great pride or do you think, ah, oh, what might have been a little bit? Uh, a bit of both. Uh, definitely, you know, super, super positive memories uh, coming back here and thinking about last year, the, lo the level and everything. But of course, you know, always when you make a semifinals of a tournament, or when, whenever you go deep, you feel like you might have a chance to, to go even further. Um, so definitely, you know, I felt like a little bit was, was left. Uh, so hopefully, you know, obviously I've got many years ahead of me, so hopefully I can do even better. Was it because you're a better grass court player or simply a better player that you'd had all that success last year? I think just everything just kind of clicked during during this part of the season for me last year. Uh, of course, I do think the grass really suits me. Um, I think for lefty, you know, with with a lot of firepower, it's uh, it's a dif difficult you know surface to play play me against uh, you know on, on this stuff. So for sure, definitely adds to my game if anything to play on the surface. But uh, in general, I just think everything just kind of came together. You've put in a lot of work. You've won at 250 level. I mean, you, you've showed that you can beat the top guys, you can live with the top guys. You must feel like you're ready to go all the way. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's been interesting with me, obviously. You know, I've had a lot of success playing, playing some top guys, uh, but sometimes I struggle to, to put it in daily and uh, sometimes against lower-ranked guys or, you know, just, just keeping that level uh, throughout the week. So it's, uh, it's been interesting, something I'm trying to figure out. And of course, you know, I definitely believe a lot in my game and uh, I do keep, keep working extremely hard and, and I'm sure it's, it's going to come together. Dennis Shapovalov speaking to Richard Connolly. Interesting there, Candy, that Shapovalov finds it tricky keeping his level against the lower-ranked players. I mean, I suppose that's just a focus thing, isn't it? I think so. He's so talented, isn't he? We know what Denis Shapovalov can bring to the table. We had a really good time of it at the beginning of this year in the ATP Cup, which he and Felix Auger-Aliassime won for Canada. But since then, it's been a bit up and down, and it's more of a mental game. I think he needs to get the coaching situation set and something that he can work with for a long time, even though there are ups and downs. We've seen him work with uh, Mikel Eugenie and Jamie Delgado, a relationship which didn't last very long. I hope that he can get that situation settled because there's so much potential from Shapovalov. He brings so much to the table. He's such an exciting flamboyant guy but the results just have not been coming recently. No, and his confidence is shot at the moment. I mean he seems to be comfortable getting to quarterfinals and even one semi-final at a major and yet he's not actually winning any tournaments. He's, he's won a couple of 250 level but hasn't won a 500 or a 1000. No, absolutely. The serve is uh, extremely good when it's on, and that's the key. He just hasn't found that consistent level. He's too up and down at the moment. And uh, perhaps he's got too many options because he's got a wonderful game. Well, that's certainly a problem. If you've got too many choices, it's a matter of making the right shot selection at the right time and something that I think he will mature and get better and improve upon as he does get older. But I would like to see that coaching situation sort of settle down and him working with a particular team which is in it for the long term. And then perhaps his consistency on the court will be like it is off the court. All tournaments profit from having some home interest and actually the British have had a, a good run up to Wimbledon this year. Andy Murray has been, uh, well, he did very well in Stuttgart, though the state of his fitness since uh, getting to the final in Stuttgart may be slightly question questionable. He plays James Duckworth, Cameron Norrie, he's done OK. He plays Pablo Andujar. Uh, Ryan Penniston has been one of the revelations. He plays Henry Laxon. Dan Evans, I love watching Dan Evans on any surface. Just a gorgeous player to watch. He plays Jason Kubler. 
and uh, Paul Jubb, who is not a, a, a well-known name on the tour, he has drawn Nick Kyrgios. So that will be a massive uh, bit of spotlight because everybody's fascinating to see how Kyrgios does. Assuming Kyrgios is fit, he withdrew from Mallorca after his first round. He had a long first-round victory, and then, but he was clutching his, the left side of his abdominal muscles and he pulled out before his quarter-final against Bautista Agut. But, I mean, Kyrgios has played... Th- three successive tournaments so Wimbledon will be his fourth successive tournament problem is the body's rebelling because he hasn't played that much Mallorca was only his seventh tournament of the year and we don't really know what Nick Kyrgios does off court I think that's the question mark when you get to majors it's best of five we know what Nick Kyrgios brings to the table how superb how talented he is what a fabulous serve he has in an all-court game but what we don't know is how fit he is can he Firstly, get back from the injury that he suffered in Mallorca. And secondly, how will he survive if he does have a couple of early round five setters? I'm not sure that that he's got the stamina to go all the way, although he certainly has the talent. He might do well in doubles because he and Tanasi Kokonakis, they're (laughs) seeded. They're the Australian Open champions and clearly he, he thoroughly enjoys that. Andy Murray's going to be in the spotlight. He will get centre court billing for all his matches. A year ago, he he seemed to be really struggling, and yet he's probably as fit as he's been since he had that amazing hip surgery three years ago to put a metal pin in his hip. I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, what on earth is he still doing playing? And yet, the drive that got him to number one in the world, three Grand Slam titles, two Olympic gold medals, Davis Cup, that doesn't die. I think to us normal human beings, we all think that he's absolutely insane. But gosh, he absolutely loves tennis. He loves competing. He's recently linked up again with Ivan Lendl. But there have been rumours, haven't there, about this could be the final Wimbledon Championship for Andy Murray. It would be a shame if it is so. He's brought so much to British tennis. But again, he's one not to count out because we know what he's capable of doing, especially when the chips are down. But it is an exciting time, especially in men's British tennis. We've got Jack Draper, haven't we, who's a standout young player. He's got all the attributes, particularly on the grass courts, that big lefty serve, very capable from the baseline, good at the net. He's got a lot of developing to do, a lot of uh, physically strengthening to do as well. But he seems like a man on a mission and he could fill the Andy Murray shoes in time. Yeah, he's shown some great form over the past few weeks. In fact, we're going to hear from him now because when Richard Connolly spoke to him, they started with Draper recalling his first round match against Novak Djokovic at last year's Wimbledon. That experience gave me um, a lot of different lessons. I think that he exposed a lot of areas in my game, uh, probably like he should do, he's number one in the world, but that gave me a lot of of things to sort of work on and improve for the coming months and I think this year I've been able to put that into action stay injury free and and here I am the year's going very quick yeah you were injured last year after the grass court season weren't you but you were able to put in a big block of pre-season training does your body feel different this year than it did this time last year yeah majorly you know after these two weeks I sort of went back on the clay and I hurt my ankle really badly I did similar to what Zverev did so um, that sort of had me out for a while because it's it's not necessarily about the injury healing because you're off court for so long uh, your vision starts to lose that a little bit and your skills become a bit rusty and so it takes a, a long time but I think at the end of the year I was able to put in a good sustained block and and that's always been the key for me, just staying injury-free. You look strong in the upper body and the shoulders. Does it feel that way? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think I think that's just me maturing as you know as a player and and all the work that I've put in. But maybe it's just genetics, just getting a bit older and a bit more <laughs> beefed up. 
you've got four challenger titles this year yeah. i mean how, how well has it gone yeah really well i mean someone said to me the other day oh do you, do you ever think oh you've won four challenger titles because i think it was like the record or something for the that first quarter of the year and uh that's a, that it's a lesson for me as well because if someone had told me that i'd been like there's no chance of that happening so uh, i thought it was impossible in my own head but i have done it and so i just got to keep keep using it as motivation and confidence to go forward you're from a tennis family haven't you tennis tennis has been part of your life pretty much from the beginning yeah for sure for sure i think uh tennis has been sort of ingrained in me at a younger age you know i've sort of Gave, given a racket when I was younger and started playing but I was also had the ability to play many other sports as well you know it wasn't just all about the tennis you know football cricket I think it was good to develop uh, hand-eye coordination in different sports as well and uh, being a team environment as well as opposed to an individual one. What did you love about tennis in particular? I think I just loved the satisfaction of being on your own having to figure things out when you're on the court I think it's different to a team sport where um, you know things are a bit different you know maybe you played a good match but then the others didn't do great or vice versa of course um, so yeah I think it's just a satisfaction of going out there yourself and, and doing a good job. You had the influence of your mum who was a really good player and a coach and you had an older brother who plays a bit as well so talk a little bit about the roles they played in, in motivating you. Yeah I mean I think having an older brother is always uh, always a good one because that competitive rivalry starts at an early age um, and I think my mum helped me when I was younger to sort of develop my skills in a way. I think now it's up to me to sort of be as good as I can on court but uh, they definitely gave me a lot of skills and I'm um, very grateful. How old were you when you first beat your older brother? I actually have one match against him and I lost so it was in my first ever ITF junior event, I think, and I lost to him four and three. I remember it very clearly. He always will have that on me. Jack Draper talking with Richard Connolly. And Candy, talking there about the importance of playing football and cricket and developing hand-eye coordination. I mean, we know that an awful lot of the top players in tennis have been good at other sports and have had to choose around the ages of, what, 10, 11, 12. How important is it to actually their development as a tennis player to have had other sports? It's essential, I would say, and uh, I think it's less common now. People are actually specialising earlier and earlier. I saw that in America where I had an academy. A lot of players uh, homeschooled at the age of 10 and just uh, playing specifically tennis. And I always think that's a mistake. You've seen Yannick Sinner, who used to be a world-class skier as a youngster, and he's got such great balance and composure. And I think it just takes the pressure off. Rather than just playing tennis, you've got a number of other sports. So if tennis isn't perhaps going your way, you can focus on something else. Plus, it gives you the coordination. It gives you the balance. It gives you all the skills that might lead to a more successful tennis career and more strength, I think, in your all-round body rather than just on one side, which tennis does tend to do. Or you could do an ash party and retire for a couple of years, play a different sport <laughs> to a high level and then come back and win three majors <laughs> and become world number one. And is she become, going to become a professional golfer? That's the uh, next stage. She certainly could do, talent-wise. She's young enough to, to give it a go, <laughs> absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how all those British players deal with the pressure of playing at home. One man who knows that feeling very well is the four-time Wimbledon semi finalist Tim Henman who reached the last of those four semi-finals 20 years ago. He was joined by the 1999 Wimbledon women's champion Lindsay Davenport to take a trip down memory lane starting with their earliest impressions of London SW19. I don't know if you can describe exactly how 
big a deal it is to a player to be able to say they played at Wimbledon. The first time I went there, I, of course, lost in the qualies, which isn't played on the main site. And I remember I was pretty young, like 15 or 16, but I remember crying. And then the next year I got in the main draw. I'll never forget this. I was up 6-2-5-1 and I couldn't believe I was about to win a match. I ended up winning 10-8 in the third. That you can't put into words like why it makes you feel like that. You just hear about it growing up and the legend. And then you go there and there's no site anywhere in the world like it. And you slightly glossed over the fact that you won the tournament. You know, when I look back, everything kind of fell into place. And, and Tim would remember maybe in 99, it rained so much. I played my round of 16 on Monday. I played my quarterfinals really late on Friday. I mean, it rained for, it just seemed endless days. And it was always a rush to try and finish it. It was craziness. And I think that helped me because it just seemed like everything was just going, going, going. I remember winning and I've seen highlights a couple of times that I look absolutely shocked. Like I didn't smile because I couldn't <laughs> believe what had just happened. I wish I could go back and like enjoy it more, but it was just like, obviously, uh, you know, amazing when I look back. It's a long time though, 21 years ago. It, time goes so fast. I, I reflect back the first time I went to, to Wimbledon when, when I was six, that was sort of when I made my one and only career decision that I wanted to play tennis. And then, <laughs> yeah, 15 years later, I, I was playing uh, first round in 96. 1997, um, I was playing Paul Harhus um, in the third round. And, and uh, when we came on court, you know, the center court was absolutely packed. And every shot I hit in the, in the warm up, you know, the crowd cheered and every shot <laughs> The crowd booed and, and it was awesome. <laughs> in terms of the atmosphere, that was the best atmosphere I ever played in. Honestly, playing in that whole era where Tim was playing at Wimbledon was crazy. And, and like everything for those couple of weeks when Tim was in, it was all about Tim. I, I honestly don't know how he survived it. I mean, you pick up a paper and it's everything was about Tim and, and every match he played. I do remember those years. I suffered through a few of Tim's losses there too. I wanted him to win. In 1995, I got disqualified from Wimbledon. I, was, I accidentally hit a pool girl in doubles. I was the first person, first person in 125 years to be disqualified. <laughs> he missed a volley, right? And he went to hit the ball back into the net, and the girl had sprinted across the net to get it. So anyway, I get disqualified. The next day, uh, I'm sharing a flat with a guy called Andrew Richardson, who was a player, fellow British player. And he went out and bought all the newspapers, which was really helpful. <laughs> and I remember, seeing the, I remember seeing the back page of The Sun, which is obviously a tabloid newspaper. And the headline, it said, he hit it so hard it could have killed her. So fast forward to 2002, I come in on the first Thursday, so ready for my second round match. And I'm in the locker room and there's a few players and they're, looking, they're reading a newspaper and they keep looking around at me. And so I'm thinking, this is weird. And they said, oh, you've got to see this. So it was, front, it was front page of the Daily Mirror. So I won one match. And the front page of the Mirror, which is another tabloid, it said across the whole page, it said, Tim, dot, 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 if you choke this year, we'll never forgive you. I got to the semis and lost to Hewitt. So I choked. This is like my funny story from 1999. So... I had no idea Steph and Andre had started dating in Paris or somewhere around that time. Um, so on the final day, I, I played Steph and Andre and Pete were playing right after us. Pete and Andre were waiting right there to walk out for the men's singles final. And we would come off and Bud Collins from NBC would interview us right before you get off the court. So I'm waiting probably like 10 feet behind. Steph goes first, um, does her interview. And then I come up to speak to Bud 
And right then, Steph kind of walks by, and um, Andre pinches her on the butt as she walks by. But I remember getting out of like that walking area, walking inside, and going, "That was so strange!" Like I, <laughs> I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> And if you were wondering, 1999 was the year that Davenport won both the singles and doubles titles at Wimbledon. Our thanks to Lindsay and, of course, Tim Henman for their recollections. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. Finally this week, while most of the discussion has been about Wimbledon, another major talking point was the announcement that following the third Grand Slam of the year, the ATP Tour will trial on-court coaching for the rest of this year. I was lucky enough to sit down with Stan Vavrenka's coach and the coach's representative on the ATP Player Council, Danny Valverdu, to discuss what the initiative involves. It involved uh, representing uh, all the needs and, and, and all the wishes that coaches have on, on how to improve their life on tour and how to improve uh, our profession so I try and, uh, and represent them uh, as best as I can on, and try to uh, to achieve things that will help us as, as professionals but that will also help us have a, a more a more enjoyable and a more uh, a professional I think is a working environment for the coaches on tour uh, so I think uh, the, the ATP coaches program has done a great job at representing most of the coaches that, that travel on tour and I think having representation at a council level uh, and also having the experience of all the coaches to, to give their input at a council level is very important for the players as well so I try and, and be that buffer between the coaches and, and the council and try and, uh, and, uh, and deliver that experience that the coaches bring to the tour uh, that I think is extremely valuable for the players and, and we've now uh, achieved something uh, quite big for us the coaching rule has been uh, has been passed so there is a trial uh, starting after Wimbledon so after Wimbledon uh, there will be a trial for six months and then hopefully we're able to keep it uh, starting in 2023 so something that the coaches has, uh, they have been wanting uh, on the ATP tour to to get through for a few years and, and I think everyone has done a good job uh, to lobby to try and get it done so uh, that's a big step for us. So what will we see watching either from the stands or on television uh, after Wimbledon with this new coaching rule? It's actually a pretty soft approach so you're able the coaches will be able to communicate with the player only when they're on their side of the court and when they're on the other side of the court they will be able to do signals with that but making sure that it doesn't interrupt the the speed of play. So and the, the the communication when the player is on your side of the court it can only be one way communication. So only from coach to player and not from player to coach. So and as long as it's within the, the time limits and it's not interrupting the, the speed of play. So it would be a, a very soft approach but I, I think it's the first step uh, to introduce this coaching rule. Uh, and I think it was very well supported by the players. Uh, so that's also very important for the coaches to know that. So um, it was a joint decision between uh, the coaches pushing pushing for it and the players being uh, quite open that it was something uh, important to get done. Because I know one of the criticisms has been, is this a, basically a rule to make it easier for umpires not to have to give coaching violations or is this something that tennis can genuinely benefit from? Were you on the side of the this is a positive development? This is a positive development. I think the way we were looking at it we were not looking at it from the officiating angle. Uh, it was more from what the players wanted and what they felt it was the right thing to do at the moment and what they felt they wanted to get out of their, their coaching staff. Uh, so they felt that having a soft approach on the coaching rule 
uh, was the right thing to do. Uh, they felt that maybe at, at some points it was happening already and it was not being enforced. Uh, and they felt that it's something that players will benefit uh, moving forward from. So it was uh, definitely a player decision and, and a player uh, and very supported by the players. So, and, But from our side, from the coaches' side, it's, uh, it's a big step that... Uh, that our job, especially during the match, is being more recognised, uh, and I think it will definitely uh, improve the game. And do you see matches which could turn as a result of a coach giving input in it's the middle? It's difficult to say, but uh, I honestly believe that it will give, it could give the player a better chance to turn the match around. Whether it would turn the match around or not, it's impossible to say. But uh, whether you're increasing the chances that that could happen, definitely. And if a player doesn't have a coach, then that's I just... Think, I think that was one of the conversations at a council level, but I think nowadays uh, over 95% of the players, if not more, uh, they're, they're, they're travelling with a coach every week. Uh, so I think the positives outweigh the negatives. Danny Valverde talking about the coaching experiment, which is a six-month trial. Candy, he calls it a soft approach to the coaching rule. How much of this do you think has been driven by the fact that it's been hard to enforce the rule that players shouldn't be coached during a match? Well, I think that's the key, isn't it? That it's already happening. It's been happening for an awful long time. There's either been uh, speech in various different languages, there have been signs, and this is just to legitimise what has already been happening. But it is quite controversial. I think some coaches are very much for it and some believe that it is a problem-solving game and the players should try and get on with it and of course the fact that some players at lower levels can't perhaps afford a travelling coach has been brought up as well so there are going to be a few hiccups but uh, for my mind it's already going on so why not make it legitimised and uh, therefore it takes the talking point away from illegal coaching. And we have six months to work out and if it's not a good idea there's always the chance to revoke it. My thanks to Stan Vavrinka's coach, Danny Valverde. We'll have plenty more discussion about on-court coaching over the coming weeks. So that's it for our coverage of the tour part of the grass court season and the build-up to Wimbledon. Be sure to check out the ATB podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or TuneIn throughout the week as we bring you plenty more exclusive one-on-one interviews. And in case you missed it, listen to the chat I did with the ATP Tour's very first president, Cliff Drysdale, 50 years on from the formation of the ATP, which was posted a few days ago. I'll be back here on the podcast alongside Jill Krabus next weekend as we look back on the first week of action at Wimbledon. In the meantime, from Candy Reid, from the Eastbourne Seagulls, who've behaved themselves impeccably, and from me, Chris Bowers, bye-bye and enjoy the tennis.